My name is Alan Carr. I'm pastor of Calvary Baptist Church in Lenore, North Carolina. Thank you for visiting our webpage and for taking the time to listen to one of our sermons. We hope this sermon, which was preached in our pulpit, will be a blessing to you in your walk with the Lord and help you grow in your understanding of God's Word. God bless you now as you listen to the preaching of the Word of God. James says, James 2.20, But wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he had offered Isaac his son upon the altar? Seest thou how faith wrought with his works, and by works was faith made perfect? And the scripture was fulfilled which saith, Abraham believed God, and it was imputed unto him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. You see then how that by works a man is justified, and not by faith only. Likewise also was not Rahab the harlot justified by works, when she had received the messengers and sent them out another way? For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. You can be seated. Now, James in this chapter has been drawing a series of contrasts. He's been contrasting living faith with dead faith, saving faith with faith that cannot save, productive faith with a faith that produces nothing, godly faith with the faith of demons. That's what he's been doing. And he's trying to help us understand that, that faith in God, true faith in God, is more than just a series of words repeated in a moment of powerful emotion. That's really all a lot, that's all some people really have, that's all they've got, is a prayer they prayed at some point in time. He wants us to understand that a genuine saving faith in God is a faith which produces good works in the life of the believer. Now way back in John 15, verses 1 through 8, Jesus gives a parable to his uh, disciples the night before he died. It's called the parable of the vine, the parable of the vineyard. But he draws from the world of agriculture. And in that passage, Jesus describes a gardener who owns a vineyard filled with grapevines. He describes the vines and he describes the branches which come out of the vines. And he tells us there the gardener tends the vines and the vine provides life to the branches. And the branches then take the life of the vine and they produce fruit out of that life. And we see this principle every day around us, don't we? Every grape you eat is proof of that principle. Somewhere there was a vine that produced branches, and those branches produced that fruit that you eat. That's how it gets here. Fruit is the end product of life. That's what we need to know. And I want you to understand that while that is true physically, it is also true spiritually. God is the gardener. Jesus is the vine. Those who are saved are the branches. The Father tends the vine. The vine, the Lord Jesus, provides life to those of us who believe in Him. And we channel that life through us and produce fruit in our life. And just as fruit is the end result of physical life in a vineyard, so also spiritual fruit is the end result 
of spiritual life in the believer. Here's how Jesus said it. He said, I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me you can do nothing. Jesus said, if you abide in me and I in you, fruit's going to happen. You will produce fruit in your life. That's what James wants us to know. That a faith that does not produce fruit or works, if you will, is dead. Faith without works is dead. He wants us to know that a life that has been transformed by the saving grace of God will be a life that is marked by fruit to the glory of God. Doesn't matter what anybody says. This is what the Word of God says. And James has made this declaration over and over and over again throughout this chapter. And as we explore the verses we have before us today, I hope we're going to see that a real faith is a productive faith. Now, as I read the text, there may have been some verses in there that bothered you. Where the Bible tells us in verse 21 that Abraham was justified by works and how because he did these things, he was made right with God. How Rahab was justified by works. All of that stands in contradiction to everything we hear and everything we've been taught. But don't worry, James is going to clear it up, I hope, and we'll come to that in just a moment. But today, I want to talk to you about the subject, faith without works is dead. And I want you to notice some lessons that James sets forth in this passage that try to prove, or do prove in my opinion, what he has been teaching. Now notice first, if you will, in verse 20, there is a disputation, there is a dispute James uh, believes is coming because of what he's been saying. In verse 20 he says, Wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? For the bulk of this chapter, James has been teaching us about the nature of true faith. And James contends that true faith always manifests itself through godly action. And according to him, a faith which does not work is not a genuine faith. A faith that produces no spiritual fruit or spiritual work to the glory of God is a dead faith. Now, it's clear from the Bible and everything we know about it that simple faith in the gospel is what brings us salvation. I believe that with all my heart. I didn't have to work my way to God. I didn't have to do anything because everything had already been done. It's like Brother Brent said, just that one simple step of surrender, and that brought me into contact with God's saving grace, and God saved me on the basis of simple faith alone. But that is not the end of the story. You see, there are many, many people in our churches today and in our culture around us, especially here in the South, who at some point in their life have bowed in an altar and they have prayed what is called, quote-unquote, the sinner's prayer. They've said a few words because somebody told them, now repeat this after me and you pray this prayer and ask Jesus into your heart and God will save you. And they believe because they've done that that they are saved forever. Now they might be saved, then again they might not be saved. It depends on the circumstances surrounding that prayer because God does not save us on the basis of, of a prayer, God saves us on the basis of faith 
in the gospel. Faith in his death and his burial and his resurrection. And that faith does not even have to be expressed verbally. is something that can happen inside a man's spirit. He looks away by faith and he's born again. Sometimes it doesn't take words. Sometimes God will let you say words. But some folk believe that because they have prayed a prayer, they're headed to heaven. Even if they never go to church, Even if they curse, even if they're addicted to alcohol or drugs, or even if they engage in promiscuous sex or whatever it is they do, people hold on to that prayer as evidence they've been saved. Now, because somebody prays and asks Jesus into their heart, we who know them also hold on to that hope, don't we? I mean, how many times have you gone to the funeral of somebody who was just wicked as the day is long, and somebody will say, you know, I remember when he was eight years old, and in Bible school he prayed and asked Jesus to save him. But you know, his life never changed. But still we want to hold on to that that little prayer he prayed, that one moment when he said something, that work he did as evidence that that individual was right with God. And so James anticipates this objection to what he's been teaching about faith and works. And he addresses those who would oppose him again in verse 20 by saying, O vain man, would thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead. When James calls this this person a vain man, that word vain means to be empty, shallow, or foolish. Isn't that amazing? Apparently, James never took a course in how to win friends and influence people. I mean, you just don't call somebody a fool, and that's exactly what he does. He's saying, you empty-headed, shallow fool, don't you understand a faith that is not backed up by godly works is dead. Listen, folks, you can pray all the sinner's prayers you want to, but if your life does not change, you did not meet Jesus. If there's no fruit or evidence that you know God, there is no evidence that you are saved, and the Bible says your faith is useless, it is worthless, it is lifeless. And James uses such forceful language because he wants us to get past this belief we have in a shallow faith in God that if we just say, yes, I believe the gospel, I believe Jesus died, I believe he rose again, and I have all this intellectual knowledge of this stuff, but we never have a life-changing moment, a moment of real conversion, he wants us to know that we're not saved. Faith without works is dead. And the reason this matters is because true salvation is not a prayer. The reason this matters is because true salvation is not a moment of emotion. It's not a simple profession of faith in Jesus. True salvation is a radical conversion. Because a sinner is confronted by the Holy Spirit of God They are brought under conviction of their sins. They are brought under conviction of the impending judgment of Almighty God. They're made aware of who God is. They're made aware of who they are. And they understand that Jesus died for them and rose again from the dead. And they're drawn to Jesus to put their faith in Him. And when they exercise that faith in God, the Bible says at that moment, what do they become? They become a new creature, right? They are born again and they are radically changed. Now, that doesn't mean they'll be perfect. 
None of us are going to be perfect until we get home to glory. But I can promise you this, we will be different. From the moment of our conversion till the day we step out into eternity, everybody who meets Jesus is different than they were before they met him. That's just the truth. And you take a child who prays a prayer of salvation and they get genuinely converted, born again, they are radically changed and saved. If they're 7, 8, 9, 10 years old, they may not have a whole lot of sin to forsake. But throughout their life, there will be a pattern in them of them seeking after God. Yes, they may stray, but they will come back. Yes, they may fail, but they will get up and go on. They will have the fruit in their life that they are seeking after God. In an adult, a salvation experience is far more radical because we had so much baggage in our life that when God saved us, there was a radical change. There was a huge difference. Our language changes. Our appetites change. Everything about us is radically transformed when we meet Christ. And that there is a seeking after God that begins at that moment that does not stop until we get home to heaven. And none of us are perfect. All of us have failed God. All of us have come short. Some of us have failed in really big ways. But we don't stay where we are. We get back up and we go after Him. And there is this constant hunger, this constant pull, this constant desire to stay after God. And that's what James is talking about. That's what Jesus meant when He said, Wherefore, by their fruits ye shall know them. You can look at how they live and know who they follow. That is exactly what he's saying. So he wants us to get past this shallow Christianity. He wants us to get past this issue of believing that just because somebody made a profession, it necessarily believes uh, it means that they're saved. It does not mean that. You can pray all the prayers you like, but if you're not converted by the Holy Spirit and the power of God, you're still trapped in your sins. It is a radical conversion. And anybody who's ever experienced it, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And if you've ever been around somebody who's experienced it, then you know what I'm talking about. They are different going forward. So James anticipates this argument from somebody he calls a shallow, empty-headed fool. And James lets us know that something big is coming. So you've got this dispute going on. And in an effort to, in an effort to settle... Y'all, pardon me, my head is full of junk today. In an effort to settle this dispute, James gives a demonstration here beginning in verse 21, and he appeals to two Old Testament Bible characters. First, he appeals to Abraham, and then he appeals to Rahab as proof of what he's saying. Now, you've got to put your thinking cap on just for a minute. Can you do that? We're in church. I know you're supposed to kick it in neutral and just kind of spin through this hour and not learn anything, but I'm going to ask you just to put it in a low gear and pull with me for a minute, and let's try to get our mind around what James is saying. It's my view that church should be a learning time. We ought to come here for teaching and not for somebody just to give us a bunch of spiritual lollipops. We ought to do a little digging ourselves. Amen. So stay with me just for a minute as we see what James is saying. 
He deals first with Abraham, beginning in verse 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he had offered Isaac his son upon the altar? Now, James says that he was justified, Abraham was, by works. That word justify means to consider righteous or as one ought to be. And that is the common usage in the New Testament of that word. It is used of our standing before Almighty God. So that's what James says, right? That Abraham had this righteous aspect about him when he offered up Isaac, his only son. But the problem with that is there seems to be some conflict here between what James is saying and what Paul said about Abraham. And I'll put this up, Romans 4, 1 through 5, and this is part of it. He said, for what saith the Scripture? Look at this. Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him, that justifieth the godly, his faith is counted for righteousness. Now wait just a minute. James said Abraham was justified when he had offered up Isaac his son. Paul said Abraham was justified by faith without any work. So who's right? Well, they both are. They're both right. There's no contradiction here, and there is no conflict here, and I'm going to try to help, try to help you understand that and get through that. Well, since both Paul and James refer to the same moment in Abraham's life, that moment when he was justified, then you and I should look at it as well, right? It goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 15, verse number 6. Now, this is a pivotal moment in the life of Abraham. He's just come out of chapter 14. He and 318 of his men have gone out to war against four kings. They went out to rescue Abraham's nephew Lot, and God gave them victory over these kings of Canaan. And like so many people, after a time of victory, Abraham was suffering a huge letdown. And as he reflected on all this money he had and all this wealth he had and all this power and fame he had, he remembered that God had promised him God was going to give him a son to be his heir. Well, it's been 10 years since he got that promise, and Abraham still doesn't have a son. In fact, just before that verse, it's on the screen now, Abraham tells God, well, I guess my servant, Eleazar, is going to have to be my heir. And God says, oh, no, buddy, I got a better plan than that for you. And God gives him the great promise that he will have a son. God takes him outside, and he says, look toward the heavens. You see those stars up there? Your offspring are going to outnumber those stars. God tells Abraham that. Listen, he doesn't have a Bible to read. He doesn't have anything but the spoken word of God and the promise of the heavens above. And God's saying, I'm going to give you a son. But the Bible says he believed in the Lord. He took God at his word and he began to live as if that were his future because it was. And when he believed God, God saved him. God justified him. That is the moment of his conversion. Now, Paul refers to that moment when Abraham believed God and God saved him. Get this in your head. Faith alone is what saved Abraham. Faith plus nothing Minus nothing, simple faith. He believed God, and God said, you're right with me. 
Now, James looks a little further down the road. He sees that time in Genesis 22 when God comes to Abraham and tells him to take his son Isaac, this son that God promised to give him, to take him to Mount Moriah and to offer him up as a burnt offering. Now, what amazes me about that is that even though Isaac is the son of promise, Abraham doesn't quibble. He just sets out to do exactly what God says. Now, how in the world could he do such a thing? He had waited a 100 years to get this boy, and now the boy's 14, 15, 16, somewhere along in there. How does this 115, 16-year-old man get it in his mind to go out and kill his son this son who is going to be the father of a great multitude. How in the world does he do that? He could do it because he understood the character of God. All of God's promises were bound up in Isaac and he believed God would work this out. So he gets Isaac, he gets his servant. And in Genesis 22, they head off to this place that God said to go and sacrifice Isaac. When they get to the foot of that mountain, Abraham tells his servants this. He says, Abide ye here with the ass, now watch this, and I and the lad will go yonder and worship and come again to you. He said, We're going up there. We're going to worship God. Both of us are. Both of us are going. Both of us are worshiping. And both of us are coming back. Now, wait a minute, old man. You know God said you got to go kill that boy. He said, I know, but we're coming back. I don't know how it's going to happen, but if i got to kill him, I'm going to kill him, and it's going to be an act of faith and worship in God, but after I sacrifice him, God's going to do something, and we're coming back. That's amazing, isn't it? And so the two, the two men, Isaac and Abraham, head up the mountain. As they climb the mountain, Isaac wants to know what's going on, and I would too. He said, now, Dad, I'm here and you're here and we got this sacrifice and you got fire and some wood and some rope, but uh, you don't have that. What, what's going to happen? What are we gonna, where are we going to get an animal to sacrifice? Here's what Abraham said. Again, faith. My son, God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. So Abraham takes Isaac up the mountain, he builds his altar, he binds his son up, and he prepares to sacrifice him. And at the last second when the knife is descending to end the life of Isaac, God speaks out of heaven, calls Abraham's name, stops him in his tracks, and points out to him a ram in the bushes. Abraham lets Isaac go, takes the ram, sacrifices him in his place, and he has his son received back to himself. He didn't know what God was going to do, but he knew God was going to do something. In fact, his faith was so strong. Look what the writer of Hebrews says about him. By faith, Abraham, when he was tried, offered up Isaac, and he that had received the promise has offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said that in Isaac shall thy seed be called, accounting, listen, that God was able to raise him up even from the dead from whence also he received him in a figure. As far as I know, at that point in time, nobody had ever been raised from the dead. But Abraham said, even if i got to kill him, God's going to have to raise him because God said he was the one through who my family would come. 
He believed God. And that's James's point. Abraham says, or rather, uh, Paul said that Abraham was saved when he believed God. James says he proved he was saved when he obeyed God. You get the distinction? There's no contradiction. They both talk about the same man. Yet at the same time, James tells us, and if we read on down here in verse number 22, he said, See thou how faith wrought with his works. Faith wrought with his works. I'm going to skip on some of that right there. Now, when James uses the word justified, usually it refers to the idea of being made right. But as James used it here, he uses the secondary meaning, which means to show, exhibit, or give evidence of. And James tells us that the faith that was in Abraham, it wrought or cooperated with his works, so that in the end his faith was made perfect, complete, or carried unto the end. You get that? That's what he's saying. Abraham was saved by faith, but he proved he was saved by what he did afterwards. He believed God, and God justified him. But he justified himself, or gave evidence of his justification through obedience. That's why James holds this man up as such a paragon of faith. Abraham's faith did not stop with salvation. He didn't just go outside that night and look up at the heavens and say, well, that's a really nice promise, and I appreciate you saying that. Oh, by the way, thanks for saving me. Now I'm going to go do my thing. No. He walked with God. He didn't walk perfectly. But he stayed after God until he died, and he proved his faith by the way he lived. Now, down here in verse 25, James mentions Rahab. Her story is found in Judges chapter 2. Now, I believe that James uses Rahab because she was entirely different from Abraham. Abraham is a spiritual giant to the Jews. I mean, he is right up there with Moses, if not superior to Moses, in the minds of the Jews. He was the father of the Jews. And so James throws Rahab in the mix, who was as, maybe as far removed as anybody could be from Abraham. Well, everybody said, well, Abraham makes sense. I mean, look what he did. Look who he was. But then you throw Rahab in there, and wait a minute, she's a nobody, basically. And that's his point in using her. Abraham was a Jew. She was a Gentile. Abraham was a patriarch. She was a prostitute. Abraham was a moral man, and Rahab was an immoral woman. As different as anybody could be. Now, if you know her story, you know she lived in Jericho. She was a harlot, a prostitute. And her house would have served as a sort of an inn where travelers would come in, and they would stay there and conduct other business. And as they were there, she would hear news from the outside. And one story she kept hearing over and over was about a people called the Israelites. And she heard about how they were traveling through the wilderness, and she heard about how their God was providing for them and how 
their God was fighting for them. And she heard how they were on their way to Canaan. And she knew that Jericho was the first city they had reached after they got to Canaan. And she heard that they said their God's going to give them Canaan. And they're going to conquer the land and destroy the people. And she didn't know anything else but that. She didn't have a gospel tract. She didn't have a Bible. She didn't have a church. She didn't have any saved friends. All she had was news from total strangers that there's a God and He has a people and they're coming and wrath is about to fall. But you know what she did? She believed. She believed. And one day some spies from Israel show up at her house and they talk to her about their God. They tell her who they are. They talk to her about what's coming. And man, she believes even more. And she puts that faith into action. She hides the spies and she helps them escape. And she sends them out with the promise that when you come here, remember me. Those guys told her, said, you get your family in your house and everything's going to be okay. Later when Israel showed up in Jericho, you know the story. They marched around the city for seven days. The walls fell down. All of them except for where Rahab lived. And she and her family were saved. And guess what? She was brought into Israel and she married a dude named Salmon. And they had a boy named Boaz. And they had, they had well, she became the great-great-grandmother of King David and a distant ancestor of Jesus Christ. In fact, she appears in the genealogy of Jesus. whole point of Rahab is just like Abraham. She believed what she heard... And then she lived it out in her works. Her faith was a living faith because it was more than a profession of faith. There was fruit. It produced something. You see what James is saying? It's pretty simple, isn't it? It's pretty simple. So let me close with this last part here. And in verse number 26, there's this declaration. Two principles. I'll say this as I get into verse 26. Two principles are very clear from Scripture. The first principle is this. Salvation is by faith alone. Abraham was saved by faith. Rahab was saved by faith. I was saved by faith. If you're saved, you're saved by faith. Faith is what saves us. Now, there's a lot of Scripture I give you. Just give you a couple real quick in passing. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. Faith without works, right? Faith that saves is alone. It saves without anything else. We know this passage real well, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For by grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. When the Philippian jailer said, How can I be saved? They said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. They didn't say believe on him and join a church and get baptized and give you tithes and attend three times a week and go out on visitation and, you know, all that junk. He said, believe and you'll be saved. You with me? How about this? But as many as received him, that's Jesus, gave you the power to become the sons of God. How? Even to them that believe on his name. And the most famous of all, John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. And I could give you more, 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 more. The fact is, a human race, apart from Jesus, is dead in trespasses and sins. We cannot get to God. We can't do it. 
That song the choir sang, I like it, about how he rescued us because we were trapped on an island of sin and we couldn't get off, but he came to where we were. Had he never come to where we were, we would never have come to him. He made the first step. He came to us in our sin, and he drew us unto himself. And in order to be saved, we've got to come to Jesus through faith alone. That's the first principle in the Bible that's true. And there are many, but that's a true principle of salvation. A second, the salvation which comes through Jesus is never alone. In the sense that it's faith that gets us in contact with God and brings us to salvation. But that faith is always followed by action. That's proven by Ahab, Rahab, and Abraham. Okay? It's also proven by every person who's listed in Hebrews 11. Every one of those great heroes of the faith, a dozen or more, all of their exploits are preceded by the words, by faith. In their case, faith in God produced action. And it's the same with you and with me. And James, more than any other writer in the New Testament, makes this clear. Look at this quickly. Verse 18, chapter 2. You show me your faith without your works. Try. Show me. Prove to me you're a Christian just by sitting there and doing nothing. James said, I'll prove to you that I know him by what I do. My life will testify that I know him. And that's the way it should be, right? Verse 20, but wilt thou know this, our text. O vain man, that faith without works is dead. Verse 24, you see then how that by man is justified, not by faith only. And also, for as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead. A body without the breath of life is nothing but bone, muscle, and tissue. That's it. This body that I live in is energized by my spirit. Okay? There's the breath of life in me. One day that breath of life will leave me. My spirit will leave my body. When that happens, this body is nothing but meat and bones. That's it. Why? Because there's no life in it. But when the breath of life comes into a body, that body can live. Lazarus in that tomb, man, he was graveyard dead until Jesus spoke the breath of life into him and he came out alive. Adam in the garden, he is laying there. God molded him out of the earth, but he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and he became a living soul. And just as breath and movement and action are the signs that we are alive. You ever, you ever, when your kids were small or your grandchildren, you ever watch them sleep and look for movement? Look to see, is their belly moving? Are they breathing? You ever do that? Am I the only one who does that? Oh, I'll pinch them a little bit and make them wiggle. Then make sure they're alive, you know. I mean, we all do that, don't we? It's just natural. We look for movement because movement says to us they're alive. Because dead things don't move. That's the principle James wants us to understand. When we're in Jesus, we're no longer dead. We are alive, and there will be the signs of life. 
there will be fruit, there will be works, there will be something that marks us out as belonging to God. That's what he's trying to say. And no matter what you may believe, works are a spiritual sign of true life in a believer. That's it. And without works, James says, your faith is dead. So, you, you say you have faith in the Lord, and that is a really good thing, praise God. But here's the question. What do you have to show for it? Can you prove by how you live that you are a child of God? Can you prove it? If you're saved, yes, you should be able to. If your faith in Jesus is real, your life will be marked by good works. There will be proof in your life that you know Him. Now, if you examine your life, and you should, everybody should be doing that right now, we ought to look back at our life and say, is there evidence that I'm seeking after God? Is there evidence that I'm different? Is there this continuous movement in God's direction that's just not there by nature, but it's in me because I know Him? If that is there, you ought to examine yourself and say, praise God, that's there. And give God the glory for putting life in you because if that is there, He did that in you, and that's wonderful. You ought to rejoice in that. But if you have to honestly say, there's no fruit in my life, you need to be born again. You need to be saved. You need to have faith implanted in you. You need what Jesus offers. And when you get what he offers, then there will be fruit in your life. So if he's calling you to come to him, you ought to come. If he's calling you to, to be born again, you ought to come. And I encourage you, don't trust some prayer you pray. I don't care personally whether you get saved in this altar or not. It doesn't matter to me. I don't care about that. That Hey, man, we could go out of here and say, well, praise God, we had one come to the altar and get saved. It doesn't matter to me if you do it in your pew. I don't care where you do it as long as you do it. Even my office will work on it, Betty. Yeah. Front room of our house will work on it, John. Hey, to work. Wherever you're at, man, God gets you to work. It don't make any difference. Parsonage will work on it, Brother Mike. It don't make no difference. God can save you anywhere. Point is that you've got to surrender. You've got to submit. You've got to believe. And when you believe, you'll see the evidence in your life. So don't trust a prayer you prayed. Don't even trust the good things you do to earn favor with God. Don't trust anything but the finished work of Christ on the cross and at the empty tomb and look away by faith and believe the gospel and watch God change your life. Watch Him change your life. Everybody who meets Him goes away changed. Isn't that right? Isn't that right? You have been listening to a sermon from Calvary Baptist Church. Thank you for taking the time to visit our webpage today and to listen to our sermon. Please check back often for new content. We'd love to have you visit with us at Calvary Baptist Church. The church is located at 1369 Blowing Rock Boulevard Northwest in Lenore, North Carolina. Our Sunday morning worship begins at 11 a.m., Sunday evening at 6 p.m., and Wednesday night at 7 p.m and you would be welcome at any of our services. Thanks again for listening, and may the Lord bless you is our prayer.